0: Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender non-conforming people produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart.
1: Yeah, and no, I'm grateful to have such amazing children. Um, if, if I've done anything right, if they, that's it, my parenting of my children and they're my achievements.
0: Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past and present, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. This week on the program, we hear an interview with Veronica Gorry, a gunai Kernai woman who lives and writes in Victoria. Veronica speaks about her debut book, Black and Blue – a memoir of her childhood and the decade she spent in the police force in conversation with 3CR community radio broadcaster Priya Kunjan. We'll also hear from Kristen O'Connell, media spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, about the impact of the discontinuation of JobKeeper in an interview with 3CR broadcaster Genevieve Siggins. First, this is Priya speaking with Veronica Gorey.
2: And now I'm going to go to an interview with Ronnie Gorey, who's a Gunai Kurnai woman who lives and writes in Victoria. She's going to join us today to speak about her debut book, Black and Blue, which is a memoir of her childhood and the decade that she spent in the police force. So, Ronnie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: No worries, Priya. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Um, I I can't recommend this book enough. It's It was just such a, such a beautiful read. And I guess before... Um, before we sort of jump into talking about some of the content, when did you realize that you needed to write this memoir? Because um, especially considering that you've written something that particularly in the second half speaks back so powerfully to the blue coat of silence, um, and ultimately you didn't leave the police force by choice, but rather because it had taken so much from you, I can only imagine that so much of this was really challenging to write. So what was this writing process like, and, and how did you get started?
1: So I remember the day vividly that I started writing. this book. it was November the 3rd, 2011. Um, it was the day before I medically discharged from the police. Um, and I, the reason I started writing is um, at the, prior to that, I'd been diagnosed with um, PTSD, anxiety and depression, and part of my traumas that I've experienced, I've lost a lot of my memories, um, and including my... Memories of raising my children, I don't all, you know, and family, um, including deaths in the family. So it's like whenever I hear um, that a particular person has passed away in my family, it's like I'm hearing it for the first time again, but so almost as if I'm always grieving. But um, that was the reason why I wrote. Um, yeah, but the process, the way I write, um, I had to be mindful of... Um, Especially in the blue part, I had to be mindful of any, the legal ramifications and um, had to be really like switched on as to what I could write and what I couldn't write because, um, you yeah, know, I, I know how hard that can be.
2: Yeah, definitely, because I think, you know, it's this really fine line that you have to tread um, to make sure that you get this story across in your own words and in a way that feels true to you as well as, you know, negotiating those institutions that still have so much of a yeah so much power and so much sway but you've got a really really beautiful writing style which sometimes moves back and forth in time and you interweave anecdotes of happy and bittersweet memories with your family and friends and culture with painful and traumatic events but you also intersperse this with humor And the way that you write, I found, also does a really wonderful job of keeping secrets. So you're able to share this deeply personal story while still retaining a level of privacy and refusing this sort of tell-all confessional. So could you tell us a bit about how you developed this style and chose to present um, your story?
1: Yeah, so the way I write is the way I speak. Um, And then anyone that knows me, and um, especially family and friends who, who are currently reading the book and have read the book, um, they actually can visualise. It's like I'm having a one-on-one conversation with them. That's how I speak, um, which I found was the easiest way to read. But also, the writing style I um, I'm comfortable or you got used to is the way um, summary of facts are written in um, some um, police and document uh, for court documents. So that's how I wrote. And um, initially when I started writing, I just wrote in chronological order because um, that's the only way I know. And then the editors will they put them all into chapters. But um, along the way as I was writing, um, so I'd be writing about one thing and then it would spark another memory. And that, that's how we get the interweaving of, um, yeah, going back and forth. And I try to use a lot of humour just to break it up because it's a bit of a you know, trauma porn. Um, but I try to break it up, um, and I can be funny sometimes, which is it's pretty
2: deadly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, like I think this is the sort of like that was just a really um, a really beautiful part of the book is the way that um, your you know strength shows through in the way that you employ humor. You know, this um, you know you've you've been experiencing these really incredibly difficult circumstances but also there's always space for love and for humor and for joy um and i think something that really struck me was how you always come back to love and family and this deep relational sense of justice that is rooted way beyond the criminal legal system and your love and protectiveness for your children um so i guess maybe moving towards some of the some of the part of uh your time in the police force, could you tell listeners a little bit about why you were motivated to join in the first place and how your position changed over time?
1: Yeah. So I I initially joined for a few reasons. So one of the main reasons was I wanted to break that cycle of um, the fear and the fear that was instilled in me as a young child. And, and my father was frightened, you know, terrified of police and my grandmother and grandparents were frightened of police. So we're talking generations here. Um, so I wanted to break the cycle for my children. Um, um, but after being in there for a short time, I realised that the was well and truly justified. Um, the brutality and the excessive use of force that I witnessed towards my own people was, um, was so hard to witness. But, um, yeah, and to speak up and speak up... It's up and out about it. Um, you're pretty much ostracised, and which I was, um, during my whole 10-year career with the police. Um, and I had no friends in the police. Um, the only friends I had um, were Aboriginal, other Aboriginal police officers. But, um, yeah, like... Yeah, just... Yeah, so I, I wanted initially to make changes in the police. I wanted to... Um, eradicate the fear that my people, Aboriginal people, have towards police. But, um, yeah, I couldn't... It was pretty a hard task. It's an impossible task because um, police are racist towards my people, so how can I change a system that have that mentality and, you know, how they racially profile people?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Um, Yeah, thank you, because something that really... Um, resonated was, you know, you work so hard in this system, but there are these structural forces um, and the way that the police force is structured makes it so difficult to make that kind of change. And um, I think something that came through as well was the amount of physical and psychological labor of policing as an Aboriginal woman um, that you talk about in the book. And I was wondering if you could talk about um, the way that you put that alongside a discussion of those relationships and family relationships that really sustained you during this time?
1: Yeah, so it's um, important to know, for people to know, that police are not only violent and um, discriminative towards uh, members of the community or civilians as they, they are known in the place, but they're violent and... Um, they racially vilify Aboriginal and black or brown or minority people in within the police. Um, but in terms of my family, sorry, I've just lost a question. Can you repeat that?
2: Yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk about how you um, compare those really difficult relationships in the police force to being sustained by um, your family relationships because you're always coming back to the love of your children and the love of your father.
1: Oh yeah yeah so um so i have a complex family, and we've all gone through our own traumas, and to be honest, my siblings have probably had it a, a lot worse than I did um especially and uh, my grandmother had it worse I mean from the age she was at the time she was eight years old, she was subjected to um atrocious and unspeakable acts against her who've been stolen by the state of victoria um but I'm very protective of my children and it always goes back to my children. Like everything I do and ha- I have done has been for them and to pave a better life for them. And so,
2: yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I was also wondering if you could maybe talk about, um, because I was really struck by Dr. Chelsea Watago's introduction and, and a lot of um, my you know, reading in the book really resonated with some of, Uh, what Dr. Wattego had outlined at the start around Aboriginal sovereignty and resistance in your family and the way, for example, you talk about your grandparents refusing to assimilate. And I was wondering if you could speak to how that kind of shines through in your writing as well, these ideas of sovereignty and resistance.
1: Yeah, so I didn't know at the time why my grandparents were the way they were. Um, So when I speak of... um, them hiding food and all that. Um, for people who haven't read the book, it's something I mention. Um, and that was from when the, um, they lived on the mission in the early days and rations were handed out. So it's only now that I've come to realise why they were, um, which is really difficult because, um, yeah, I wish I hadn't known that earlier. Um, also, my grandmother, she never really spoke about her, her um, experiences um it wasn't until twenty years after she passed, and i was um had access to reward files um that I found out about um everything that happened to her but um I'm so proud of my grandparents for not assimilating and yeah, just really proud of that and it's um it was through them that i was so proud of my Aboriginality and my good luck, the fact that I always knew that I was Aboriginal. And actually, like, when I was younger, I actually thought um, Aboriginal people were the majority and white fellows were the minority. Yeah, but was, how wrong was I, hey?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that sense of pride just constantly comes through because even though the relationships, if you, as you've said, are really complex um, and people are struggling with really complex trauma, you, that that pride really um, is there all the way throughout the book. Um, so I was also wondering if you could tell us about some of the writers who really inspire you the most and whose work you might like to amplify here. Who are you reading right now?
1: So uh, um, so I read anything by Dr. Chelsea Vodagoe. She's so deadly. Um, Amy McGuire, uh, Melissa Lukashenko, and um, Ricky Onis
2: um and anything written by my granddaughter Naisha Gary Yeah I think um this is something that really when I was reading about you know through through the book and your pride and assertions of sovereignty and your family just not backing down I think that is really carried on through your own work and the work of your children cuz um I think it's just just amazing to see how that strength is carried through the generations. Um, so before we, we go into a bit about where people can get a copy, um, is there anything else that you wanted to mention or anyone else you wanted to shout out?
1: Um, no, really. I just want to thank everyone, and especially Mob, like um, the social media platforms. Their support and the promoting of my book prior to publication has been so like, incredible and This is the reason why I write write books and why I do my writing. um, I particularly write for my people. Um, Yeah, so thank you to everyone who has supported me.
2: Yeah, wonderful. And where can people get a copy of Black and Blue?
1: So, well, any good bookstores will have it. Women on the
3: Line.
0: On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You just heard Veronica Gore speaking about her debut book, Black and Blue, with 3CR broadcaster Priya Kunjan. Next, we hear Kristen O'Connell, media spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, speaking with 3CR broadcaster Genevieve Siggins. We have a very special guest. Uh, Her name is Kristen O'Connell. She's a media
3: spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union – we're going to be talking to her about uh, the implementation of the cashless debit card and the impact of the discontinuation of JobKeeper um, and the impact this will have on the under and unemployed um, in Australia. Uh, how are you going? Thank you so much for joining us, Kristen.
4: Thanks, Genevieve. Thank you so much for having me again.
3: Oh, of course. We love having you on the show. Um would you be able to just um, explain, you know, what the uh, Australian Unemployed Workers Union is and what they do?
4: Absolutely. So um, we're a group of unpaid workers who uh, run an organisation by the unemployed, for the unemployed, and underemployed and insecure workers too. Um, we really campaign um, to improve our welfare system and make it actually safe for everyone. Um, and we, one of our most important functions, is that we provide a direct support service for people who are being bullied or threatened or just confused about their interaction with their job agency and employment services and employment services um, essentially is the bunch of rules that make no sense um, that you're forced to comply with just to get your poverty payment. And so at the moment payments are back down to about half the poverty line.
3: Yeah. I'm going to jump straight into that actually. Uh, You know, last Sunday, marked the day that both JobKeeper and the rental moratorium ended for Australians. Um, Would you be able to break this down in terms of what exactly this means?
4: Yeah, so at the moment, we're still waiting to see the real effects of JobKeeper ending unfold. Um, What we do know is that there have, I think there are about 1 million people who were still having their employment supported by JobKeeper um, at the end of the program. Um, You know, we've been hearing from people that, for example, they may not, be expecting that they're fully going to lose their job, but they're going to be earning less after JobKeeper ends than they are now. And so JobKeeper is already very low. It's actually so low that you can qualify for unemployment payments. So if you're getting JobKeeper, it's about seven fifty a fortnight and you can get a small pop up from that payment from Job Seeker. So we're going to see people being pushed back down either because of lower work hours or because they're going to be transitioning fully onto Job Seeker, which as I said is about half poverty line for a single person Um, and you know it the this with the pressure of housing costs as we've seen over the last couple of months somehow in this country housing prices continue to skyrocket no matter what happens not even a global pandemic could kill the disgusting mm-hmm. inflation in our property market. And so we hearing from people all over the country that the pressure on their budget as these payments are being reduced and slashed and gotten rid of entirely, while um, people are spending extraordinary amounts on, on snapping up investment properties and homes. And not only that, but people relocating. And so people who are a bit better off and can afford to have been migrating out of the cities en masse. And so we're particularly hearing about the pressure in regional housing markets where people who have in the past been able to rely on lower cost housing are now finding that they can't afford their rent anymore and you know we're talking about in Toowoomba I was um, hearing on the ABC there's something like 0.7% Uh, rental vacancies. It's just not possible right now for low-income people to be able to find a home if they're looking for one. And lots of people, because of these cuts, are going to be forced out of their home as well. So the effect of all these things combined is pretty catastrophic. And the outcome ultimately is that people's mental and physical health is being destroyed. Right now, there are about 260,000 people who are actually employed who are on an unemployment payment because their jobs suck. You know, that job insecurity problem has been around for a long time. It's been dramatically increasing over the last couple of decades with casualisation, employers being given more power over workers, Um, and wages being really flat for a very long time. We've seen these employment conditions that haven't been resolved by government responses to COVID, and it was a real opportunity Mm. actually to do things, to try and protect people in those types of jobs.
3: I think um, especially, you know, uh, pinpointing the vulnerability of, like, casual workers, I think that's especially what... JobKeeper did as well by kind of being like, you know, JobKeeper is for permanent workers or part time workers, full time workers. And I think they did adjust it in the end to um, kind of encompass more casual workers. But I think that really uh, highlighted the issue there as well.
4: And then we had, um, you know, the Labor Party sticking the boot in for casual workers who might have been getting a bit more under JobKeeper than they were getting um, when they were working before it came in. So they did exclude casual workers who'd only had their job for less than a year. Yeah. But people who, you know, had been previously trying to survive on the poverty line or slightly above it ended up closer to the minimum wage. And, you know, they were kind of blamed for getting too much money, whereas, you know, what we know was really the problem was Um, companies getting JobKeeper who were like having hundreds of millions of dollars of profits and shareholder dividends and executive bonuses and stuff like that. So it was really depressing to see that. Um, It was lucky that it ended up getting extended to some casuals, but you're right, excluding people um, caused a lot of grief and hardship. And, you know, just going back also to the point about unemployed workers being doing labor, it's also just a fact that no matter whether you have any wage work or not, the government designs unemployment into the economy. So literally by being unemployed, you're doing the work of keeping inflation down. It's the government plan to do that. So if they're planning to keep a million people unemployed just to serve that function, then they need to make sure we can afford to live.
3: Yeah. And I wanted to get into you mentioned it a little bit before, but, you know, the correlation between Job seeker and now the end of JobKeeper. Um, what kind of relation do they have, and what kind of impact does this have on people already in low wage work?
4: Mm, so yeah, we've got a group of people who are already eligible for JobSeeker payments. It doesn't mean all of them would have been on JobSeeker because many people may not know that that was an option available to them. Um, But, yeah, we're going to see... I think the Treasury described it uh, last week in Senate Estimate as bumpy, and I think that's the only way to predict it. They said they think up to 150,000 people will lose their job when JobKeeper ends. Um, It's very hard. You know, Treasury have put out some pretty wild statistics in the last few months that have proven incredibly off the mark. So they said that they'd get, you know... 450,000 jobs supported by JobMaker with 45,000 of those being new jobs. And so far, we've got about 600 jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's entirely possible that those numbers are out. But if we're looking at another 100,000 people, say, coming onto unemployment payments, um, that's a dramatic increase. Um, there may already be many of those people on them. But either way, whether you're already on JobSeeker, whether you're not, whether you're earning wages, everyone who's got any interaction Um, with those programs this week is going to experience a cut. And so we're talking about quite literally millions of Australians, people between sort of, um, you know, very, very rough figures would sort of be between two and a half and three million people who are going to be experiencing a cut.
3: Wow. Yeah. Um, Extremely disappointing. families
4: as well, right? There's like a million kids in those families too. And child poverty in this country is is appallingly Mm -hmm. high. I think it was one in six kids that I saw yesterday in the news are currently in poverty. And that's a big increase from last year. Even um, economists and big uh, industry groups have now been calling for a much more substantial increase in JobSeeker for quite some time. And so we really just say that it feels like the government hates poor people more than they love their donors because that's not our conventional allies. Um, And they also are saying, you know, they have different reasons, but they do think people should be able to eat properly and regularly and access healthcare and all those basics that we can't really see people having um, right now. So, yeah, there's uh, a lot going on there. We don't really know how to change the government's mind on this. Um, Obviously, we've tried really hard and last year it felt like there may have been some cause uh, for hope. Mm. Um, And now a lot of people are feeling like that hope has been ripped away uh, with these really drastic cuts.
3: Yeah, and I think there is an image kind of permeating the media cycle of, you know, these... um Benefits are generous, like, you know, compared to other countries, like, you know, they're they're on such good, like, benefits and blah, blah, blah. And, like, that kind of, like, public uh, perception of underemployed and unemployed people still is really strong.
4: That's right. And, you know, it's absurd for the government to compare us to other OECD countries because, for example, like the social wage in Australia, it does not compare. So social wage includes things like education. Housing, healthcare, and when we're comparing our unemployment payment in a country where we have to pay, even with Medicare, really high costs to access healthcare, um, extraordinarily high housing costs, you know, up there with the highest in the world, um, and very little access to public and social housing, waiting lists that are 10 years and longer, of course we can't get by on these payments because we have all those extra costs, even sending your kid to school even if you send them to public school you've got uniforms you've got textbooks all sorts of things that just aren't included and really put strain on people on low incomes and people in the welfare system so we don't actually have generous payments at all Mm. Um, there are lots of different measures of the poverty line and no matter which one you choose even the lowest poverty line we are very far below it Um, and you know the poverty line reflects what it takes to live in our country not in another country um we also have very high prices for basic costs so yeah it's it's just one of those lines people like to roll out to make them sound reasonable um people are expecting unemployed people to be grateful for support but they don't realize i think the human and health cost of these systems um and you know it's it's really affordable to actually keep people out of poverty there are lots of expenses in this country that we could cut if we needed to which we don't Um, i think unemployment payments should be the first thing to be increased and the last thing to be cut Um, because they also have lots of other flow-on costs and these myths about people turning down work are just absolute uh nonsense and we've been trying to get data and that you know constantly the government fails to produce anything to back that up and all of the data so far proves that it's false so yeah, we've got a
3: lot of challenges. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also just wanted to ask you, um, you know, in light of the temporary pause that was put on the cashless debit card, uh, now mm-hmm. that's been lifted, uh, you know, and it's something like forcing 4,000 Australians to be put on the welfare card. Um, here at 3CR, you know, we've spoken at length about the detrimental impact this these cards uh, this card will have on people, especially First Nations people, and I mean, in conjunction with JobKeeper ending um, and many people going on JobSeeker and potentially going on this card. You know, what are uh, the A U uh, W thoughts on this? Um, can you explain the impact further?
4: Yeah, I mean, the cashless debit card, I'm sure, because you guys do talk about it and give it the coverage it needs, people are aware that it's a deeply racist program. Um, and so we're going to see, as you said, several thousand more people um, pushed onto the card forcibly as a result of these changes, um, the reintroduction of uh, new participants in the card. So people who lost work because of a global pandemic are going to be put on income management where they don't have control over their own spending, where they're forced to shop at businesses that engage in price gouging because they know people aren't allowed to go to smaller and more local businesses. Um, And that's on top of, there's already about 11,000 people on the card. People who have lost their work because of COVID are going to be punished as well. But that's actually not the end of it because the same, um, there was new legislation brought in in December, forced through um, with the help of Sterling Griffith, Um, absolute coward from South Australia, who flipped at the last minute. And that now means that in the Northern Territory, where we've got sort of well over 20,000 people um, on the basics card, which quarantines a lower amount of your income, so it's 50% on basics card, 80% on CDC, they're now giving the air quotes option um, to transition onto CDC by choice. But we know that in the past, with things like this, the government has kind of coerced people into changing over. Um, so we're really worried about that as well. We're potentially going to see tens of thousands more people on the CDC um, based on false information that may be provided to them or misleading information. And we've seen everyone in Cape York, which is about 90 people, forced onto it as well. So it's certainly the government is going hard on this, and that's flying in the face of the... Um, evidence that's been provided to date that uh, aid shows that it doesn't achieve what the government wants it to, um, and it also is actually contributing to harm in communities. And we're looking at places like the East Kimberley where the Indigenous population of people on the card is 80%. In Seduna in South Australia, it's 76%. So that just kind of illustrates the type of approach the government is taking to treating um, black folks and their communities as petri dish for the most punitive um, programs that breach human rights um, and really cause a great deal of harm.
0: You've been listening to Kristen O'Connell, media spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, speaking with 3CR Community Radio broadcaster Genevieve Siggins. Earlier in the program, you heard Veronica Gori, a gunai Kurnai woman who lives in writes in Victoria, speaking about her debut book, Black and Blue, in conversation with 3CR broadcaster Priya Kunjin. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender non-conforming people. This program was produced in Nam, Melbourne, with the amazing support of 3CR staff. A big thank you to them. Women on the Line is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we greatly appreciate the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 8377. If you'd like more information about today's program or to listen to the show again, you can find what you need on the Women on the Line website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Guevara. I'm Emma Hart. hope you can tune in again next time.